Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Bill Shutt. His last name is spelled S-C-H-U-T-T. And he's just published a book September 21st, 2021. Title of the book is Pump, A Natural History of the Heart. Fascinating book. Very accessible. I learned so much reading this book about uh, the functioning of the circulatory system, the heart as well. Um, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see a cover of the book. And uh, But this is not Mr. Shutt's first book. He has also written Dark Banquet, Blood and the Curious Lives of Blood-Feeding Creatures in 2008, and also Cannibalism, A Perfectly Natural History, published 2017. And that book, Cannibalism, was named a Best Book of the Year by Amazon and was a Goodreads Choice Awards finalist. And uh, Mr. Shutt is a vertebrate zoologist and author and emeritus professor of biology at Long Island University. And he is now a full-time author who maintains strong ties with the American Museum of Natural History, where he is a research associate in the Department of Mammalogy. But uh, he can tell more of the stories that he's included in this book. So Mr. Shutt, are you there? Yeah, nice to be here. Yeah, great, great for, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not have heard your background or some of your other books, can you talk about uh, your research and what led you to write this book, Pump, A Natural History of the Heart? Yeah, what, what, when I went for my PhD at Cornell University, I started there in 1990, and uh, and my mentor had a, a, a strong interest in bats, and I'd always been into uh, strange animals and 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 had pets and and collected creatures from under rocks and for my entire life. So I think I was a zoologist from when I was five or six years old. And so his grant money was looking at horse muscle biochemistry, but his, I think his research love had to do with, uh, with bats. So it probably took me about five minutes to decide what animals I wanted to work on. And then within the 1400 or so species of bats, it might've taken a little bit longer, but not much to, to figure out that I wanted to work on vampire bats. And so I did that for about 25, 30 years looked at other creatures as well but uh, but there was so much to look at with regard to vampires that that I that I in a sense made a profession out of it I was very lucky in that 99% um, of what had been known about vampire bats and published at the time was known about one of the three and the other two were turned out to be open books and so I went in and got to show that there were major differences first in anatomy then in behavior um, so I wrote a bunch of scientific papers, uh, peer-reviewed journals, things like that, book chapters. But then an opportunity presented itself in, uh, in about 2007 to, uh, to, to, to write a, a popular science book. So that became Dark Banquet. And, and the first half of the book was the work that I had done on, on, on vampires. But I was lucky at the time, and a lot of people were unlucky, because things like the bed bug crisis was taking place and, and, and Lyme disease with, uh, with ticks. So, uh, so what I got to write about was, was really relevant and, and newsworthy. And so from there, um, I just decided to stay with this sort of uh, complex types of topics that were misunderstood and, and give them a, uh, a zoological slant. And that's what I did with cannibalism and, and, um, and, really cannibalism the, to me, the, the, the gift that keeps on giving because I've, I've been, you know, I, I still get interviews and there's just this, this interest in the book that, that beyond went beyond anything that I thought was going to happen. So my third book, I had this list of kind of bizarre topics that I wanted to, to follow. And, and my agent and, uh, and, and my editors at Algonquin said, Bill, why don't you look at something a bit more mainstream? And one of the things that they suggested was the heart. 
So initially I thought, all right, well, um, this has probably been done so many times that how much of a, of a Bill Shutt book is there in there? And, and I was really surprised and, and thrilled to find that, that, that there was this great body of work that had not been covered. So I moved through the animal kingdom. Um, and, and it's not an encyclopedia, but look at different types of hearts and circulatory systems. And, and, and as it turned out, a lot of the, of the animals that I picked, and I didn't know this going in, turned out to be creatures that are being examined now by researchers who are doing work on, on, on cardiac medicine. And I'm also a, a, a history buff. So I went through and looked at the, the history of cardiac medicine. And not only that, but, but things like, you know, why... Did, why is there this association between the heart and emotion and and and, in, and and intellect and 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 the soul? Where did that come from? So I got to explore those types of questions, and then moved on into the types of things that are, uh, you know, advances, modern advances, and what's the future of cardiology and cardiac medicine? And and a lot of it had to do with the animals that I had been looking at, and some of them even moved into the, uh, you know, some of them even came out of the the, the plant kingdom. Right. It's really fascinating. All of these different animals that you include, you talk about baboons, pigs, uh, blue whales, uh, horseshoe crabs, all these animals and the, and how their blood pumps through. You start off the book with the story of a blue whale and your involvement in studying something that hadn't really been studied. Can you talk about how you start the book off? Yeah. Um, so so in, in, in 2014, there was this sort of tragedy up in Canada. Nine blue whales were, were, were stuck on the ice up there in, off the coast of Newfoundland, and they died. And usually blue whales sink, which during the whaling times made them the wrong whales. The, the right whales were the whales that when you threw a harpoon in them, they, you know, they floated. Um, and so I had friends that are curators at the, at the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto that were whale experts, but they did not know a lot about the, the organ systems of the largest creature that ever lived. So they would get questions like, what's the biggest heart in the world? Blue whale heart. How big? Yeah, it's like the size of a sedan. But they didn't really know for sure. And so three of these whales that died floated, and we think it was because they got propped up underneath ice flows. And two of them... Um, Two of them landed in these small fishing villages, and they were able. The, the, this crew from the ROM was able to go access these whales and 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 try to recover the heart. And it wasn't a done deal that these were going to be well preserved because they'd found carcasses of whales before, and everything is like a mess. But they opened one of them up, and here was this heart sitting in there. So they, it's you know, we're talking about construction equipment, a team of ten people to get the heart out. They they had to go inside the whale, spread the the, the ribs, and then push this heart out after they cut the major vessels off of it. And it took five years to preserve it. You know, when you're in a when you're in a in a science classroom, you're worried about getting formaldehyde splashed on you. Here, these guys were using thousands of gallons of formaldehyde. They were worried about falling into a vat of it. So they wound up sending this, after it was preserved, they sent it over to Germany to this plastinarium. And, and anybody who's ever seen the, the live, the bodies exhibit, where you've got a guy who's, I don't know, he's playing basketball or something, or he, don't have, he doesn't have skin on him. It's, you know, this preservation method. And this was the largest... Uh, undertaking that 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 those folks in Germany um, did and their, their biggest project. So what came back is this after five years is this beautiful, beautiful model weighed about 400 pounds, stunning to look at. And you can see it now that they actually have an exhibit going on. 
But the thing is that they that there was so much about this heart that they didn't suspect. They had no clue. For one, it was a lot smaller than they thought it was going to be. So, for example, if you had a 90-ton hummingbird, it would have a heart that was eight times larger than that 400-pound blue whale heart. And we think this has to do with the fact that if you're a hummingbird and your wings are beating at 80 beats per second, and you've got to get blood to those up to those muscles, one way to do that is you speed the heart rate up 1,260 times per minute. We think that's about the physical limit that a heart can can beat, fill up, contract, and and then do it again. And the only other way besides speeding up heart rate, which you're at the top probably, is to have a larger heart. So these animals that have a higher metabolic rate, uh, like shrews, the little mousy thing, and, and the hummingbirds, they've got these gigantic hearts. Uh, the blue whale, its heart maybe beats 10, 15 times per minute. When it's diving, it it probably beats two or three times per minute, which is right. when they saw this heart, to me, it looked like a 400 pound soup dumpling. It completely collapsed. It didn't look like, you know, a beef heart or something like that. So there were all of these neat things that they learned about this and then, and they're still learning. Right. No, it's really remarkable. And it kind of goes into all these other animals. You talk about the giraffe and how they have to do this. And the, the shrew is super fast heart and how the heart uh, changes through all that Stuff. I mean, can you talk maybe about the evolutionary perspective of the heart and how it developed over time into different uh, strata of the animal and human kingdom? Sure. So, so if you split this up into sort of animals with, with, with backbones, the vertebrates, that's a pretty simple story because we think that hearts and circulatory systems evolved once. So we're talking about fish, amphibians, reptiles, birds, and, and mammals. Uh, they, they've got a common ancestor, and, and that's where we believe they got this heart. Of course, there are differences. A, a fish, for example, has two-chambered heart. A human, a mammal, a bird, uh, or, or, or crocodiles and alligators, they have a four-chambered heart. So it's pretty similar if you go through the vertebrates. But on the other side, most animals are invertebrates. They don't have a backbone. And here you see this incredible array of of structures that somebody who's a cardiac surgeon might not consider this to be a heart because it doesn't have the specific cell lining. Um, and, and, and here we think that these pumps, which you could call a heart with you know, quotation marks around that, uh, evolved many times. So you see an incredible amount of variation. And you see open circulatory systems where the blood gets leaves the, the leaves circulation and, and, and moves into like this kind of uh, chamber for a while, uh, as opposed to closed circulatory systems where the blood is always contained in this circuit. And, and so you could go on and on. There are invertebrates like squid who have three hearts and, and, uh, and insects have a very different type of, of heart because their heart's not responsible for circulating oxygen and, and carbon dioxide. It's just nutrients and waste that they're, that they're shifting around the bodies. So this is tremendous amount of variation throughout the animal kingdom. Right. So, I mean, and just to go back, there's a really great illustration. The illustrations in the book are excellent of this, the illustration of the blue whale heart and its complexity. So when people get the book, they can check that out and see the other illustrations as well. One of the chapters that I really enjoyed reading was kind of, it was titled Bad Blood and Bad Sushi, Sushi. but I learned a lot about the, these horseshoe crabs. And can you talk kind of about uh, their importance and how unique they are and why they're important to uh, humans today. 
Yeah, if, uh, this was certainly one of those instances where I, I went in looking at a type of, of, of an invertebrate heart that was that, you know, our hearts, have, you know, I was going to have this kind of snarky chapter where where I explained, you, you know, that you never see you never see movies where an Aztec priest has got a, uh, a has a horseshoe crab heart and he's holding it up and and it's beating. That's because if you if you were to remove a horseshoe crab heart from and any number of other types of invertebrates who's who the, where the beat is governed by nerves that come into the heart from the outside. As soon as you take that heart out, it stops beating. But the human heart has a pacemaker that 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 keeps it beating from inside the heart. Right. So 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 that was, you know, th that's where I sort of got started on um, on on looking at, um, at at looking at hearts like a horseshoe crab heart. But then this whole idea that came up that I, I started to realize that these are animals that have been around for half a billion years. And we throw around this term uh, living fossil. And in reality, this is really a living fossil because a, a half a billion years ago, horseshoe crab looked like a horseshoe crab. And this right. is 250 billion years before the first dinosaur. Right. So you can and see they, it in the geological record, right? Absolutely. And and so so these animals have been around for a whole long time, but it recently, since the over the last century or two, they've become endangered. At first, because they were used as fertilizer. And there are pictures that you can look up where there are millions of these things stacked up in walls where they were chopped up and, and used as fertilizer. Then as bait by fishermen who who catch eels and whelk. Then in the 1960s, a researcher found out that there's a substance in the blood of horseshoe crabs, and they have blue blood for reasons that I talk about. There's a, a substance in this blood that when it comes into contact with endotoxin, forms a clot. And endotoxins, briefly, are substances that are released by, by, by gram-negative bacteria, and some really nasty pathogenic bacteria, but not as a defense mechanism or something that the bacteria is trying to do endotoxins are part of the membrane, the cell of these bacteria. And when you sterilize something that has that bacteria on it, you burst those cells. And this material uh, is toxic if it gets into the human body. So because of this, these sort of industrial sized facilities sprung up that would you know, we, we saw this, I live on Long Island. I'd see pickup trucks full of hundreds of horseshoe crabs right around the mating season when you can go access them easily on beaches. And they would bring these crabs to these facilities, hang them upside down, no refrigeration, no, no water, and, and stick a cannula into their heart, drain their blue blood until it stopped draining. Um, and they lost about, they probably lose 40% of their blood. Now you, you take these animals and, and you, and by law you have to return them to the, to the sea. So you do that, but a great many of them are dying. Now, so, so now there are, that's not to say that this is not, you know, that this is not important medical research because it certainly saves thousands of lives. And we're talking about things like anything that's sterilized from catheters to, to, to drug, uh, to, you know, to, to drug batches, to hospital equipment. Um, but recently they've come up with a test, uh, a DNA based test that, that, that allows researchers and, 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 and will allow in a hospital setting and drug company settings to test for the presence of endotoxin without using horseshoe crab blood. And this started to be used by some major drug companies and then COVID hit. And as soon as COVID hit, 
researchers and, and people who were dealing with sterile situations had to go back and, and use the tried and true tests that were being supplied by a number of different companies. So this new research took a back burner to, um, uh, to, to, the, um, to the tried and true tests that cause uh, a lot of deaths for, uh, for horseshoe crabs. Right. So, I mean, these horseshoe crabs have very unique characteristics, a different type of blood that what binds to copper or something or not iron. It has amoebocytes. So they're very different. It's a very different creature, but it's beneficial to human beings. Oh, yeah. So if you see if you see blue blood, basically, that, so like you said, this is a copper based a pigment that travels around and it's the equivalent of hemoglobin, which is iron based. Now you take iron and hemoglobin and add oxygen to it and it's red. And that gives us our red blood. If you take, if you look at the Statue of Liberty and you see the oxidation that's take place as oxygen hits copper, it turns blue. So it's really that type of reaction where oxygen comes into contact with one of these compounds that's found, one of these different compounds that's found in, in the oxygen carrier uh, in, in humans, say, or, or, or mammals versus blue-blooded creatures like insects and lobsters, uh, horseshoe crabs. Right. No, it's really incredible. And so, I mean, you, you kind of encapsulate, you also talk about the effect of something that you know of studying bats, which is hibernation and the cold effects of the circulatory system. Can you talk about that? Yeah, some of the interesting things that I found, you know, when I when I was a kid, I and and uh, and Walt Disney passed away. There was this rumor going around that that they they froze his body and it was underneath uh, Pirates of the Caribbean somewhere, waiting to be thawed out um, decades later when when they could cure him. I believe he had cancer. Um, but so so I started to think about uh, about hibernation and about cryogenics and were there things that were going on right now as far as cryogenic research and and what I found is that not so much anymore um, but some of the things that 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 I that I ran into with regard to to, to say frogs a northern wood frog this is an animal so, so, let me put it to you this way some animals that you're going to see out there and that i that i go over they, they got they have a basically antifreeze in their blood to keep from freezing but something like a, the northern wood frog completely different this is an animal who allows its body to completely freeze freeze solid and and the researcher was you know referring to them as a as a, it's like a frog sickle and and they're able to do this if, if that were to happen to us the the, the water in our bodies would freeze into jagged ice crystals and damage our cells and tissues. But these animals are, are, are able, right before they hibernate, they release a tremendous amount of, of, of glucose into their, into their bloodstream. And what this does, uh, you know, sort of briefly, is that it, it causes all of the water to leave their cells and tissues and to accumulate in places like their abdominal cavity. And it freezes. So I said... Uh, and I said, how much freezing are you talking about here? He says, well, if you open up one of these frogs, it looks like a slushy inside. And so by doing that, they're able to uh, th to then have their bodies freeze without doing the damage that that you would normally uh, see if you had an animal that was uh, that was that was flash frozen. And so that was just you know, that, that those were just some of the interesting, uh, you know, hibernation related or cold related topics that, that right. I can cover. Right. And like the fish has the antifreeze properties as well. Yeah. I mean, you talk about how freeze tolerance and hibernation means longer life, slower aging too. So the, 
in the animal kingdom, there's so much variety. It's really oh, incredible. Yeah. And we're using that stuff. The, you mentioned the, the, the Antarctic ice fish. And, and so is there a medical benefit there? No, they're using that antifreeze. If you've ever had ice cream, right, and you're eating it, and then you don't, you're not finishing it, you put it away, you put it in the refrigerator, and when it comes back out again, it's like all this kind of crunchy ice, right? Well, that's what's that. So, so they're preventing it by using the antifreeze compound in these ice fish. They're adding it to the uh, to, to their mixture for for um, uh, for for ice cream. And 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 so yeah. So instead of like saving mankind, it is improving mouthfeel in refrozen ice cream. Well, there is applications in your book about saving mankind. You have a section about baby Fay and really the future, the past, present, and future. Uh, definitely involves kind of zoological influences on uh, possibly the future of people getting heart transplants. Can you talk about that section of the book? Um, yeah. One, so, so baby Faye briefly in 1984, um, Dr. Leonard Bailey out in Loma Linda, California, transplanted a, bab a baby baboon heart into the heart of a desperately ill newborn. And, and he didn't do it because you know, he wanted fame or, 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 or wanted to try out a new technique. He did it because there were no infant donor hearts at the time. And so he was looking for an alternative. So they depressed the baby phase immune system. She, she almost died the night before. So this, this baby had a, a left heart syndrome that, that was going to be deadly. Right. HLHS, HL, right? Yeah, you can envision it as that the whole left side of the heart doesn't work. And that's the side of the heart that pumps your oxygenated blood to the body. Now, now, so 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 he got he talked to the mother and, and explained the situation and she said go. They did the transplant. It worked very very well. Uh, the baby got color back. Uh, the baby was eating, and and unfortunately, twenty days later, baby Faye died. Now during this time, there was this massive media crush. It was a, a, a it was covered by by every place uh, that that you can think of from newspapers to yeah worldwide right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so there was a lot of attention about this. And it was tragic when baby Faye died for something that had nothing to do with organ rejection. That, 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 that heart was, was beating fine. It was something very different. Um, but what came out of that was this realization that, uh, that, that there was a need for infant heart donors. And so, so they started to come in. And then other people looked at this research and said, well, let what if we could, what if we're able to to cure a uh, hypoplastic left heart syndrome without a heart transplant and now as i show in the book they have this incredibly complex so cool staged reconstruction of the heart that basically bypasses the faulty left side of the heart and makes the right side the the pump uh, the, the, the pump um, that sends blood out to the body and you go well what about the venous blood coming back that usually goes to the right side they direct it straight to the lungs so this, so it's incredible, and and these are the types of things that you know when I when I look at that, um, there's there this is you know there's so much good that came out of something that was apparently it was certainly a tragedy back then, and 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 I was also able to look at the sort of um, animal related phenomenon that that um, that that researchers are now investigating. You know, I like to I like to have a dollar for every time I was asked. You know, you. You you you, uh, you study vampire bats for thirty years, but but how does that keep my grandmother alive a year longer? And and here are these instances, and there was this laundry list of animals with seemingly strange, unique hearts and circulatory systems 
that we're now studying to, to deal with the problems that we have with the heart, like its inability to repair itself, for one, or the fact that, um, that, that there are some people who can't exercise after, a, uh, after having a heart attack um, or some type of a heart procedure. How do you make their heart tissue healthier? How do you grow that heart? And the answers lie in the animal kingdom. So that's why I was able to sort of go in, cut out all the jargon, and and have these teaching moments where I got big um, concepts across in ways that were through stories that were sort of repeatable that you could tell at a di- at a dinner table and and right. um, and 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 not have to worry about wading through complex scientific jargon. Um, right, and I mean we talked about in the pre-show like very good narrative uh, stories and very accessible. So I mean kudos to you. But also you talk about past conceptions of the heart circulatory system, what we knew, what we thought we knew as human beings. I mean, can you talk about really going back? You talk about some of the great kind of thinkers or physicians of the past. Can you talk about uh, some of those ancient and medieval sensibilities of, of what the cardiovascular system was? Sure. When I was when I was writing a book about cannibalism, I was really interested in the um, in, in in why when you say that word, you have this knee jerk reaction. And the, and the chapter was going to be entitled "Blame It on the Ancient Greeks." And and when I started to look at where are these concepts that were that, that turned out to be wrong about the heart as the the seat of emotion or or intellect or or or, or the soul, um, you could have named the chapter "Blame It on the Ancient Egyptians." who did a lot of medical work. And so they may have been able to characterize things like heart attacks and aneurysms. Difficult to tell when you're translating you know, hieroglyphs and papyrus. Um, but, but the bottom line is that their, um, their medical information was held in high esteem by, by the Greeks who, who, who picked up on a lot of their, uh, of, of their work. And so, uh, so and, and from the Greeks, then the Romans came along and did the same thing. They, they, they picked that material up from, 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 the, from, from the ancient Greeks. But the bottom line is that a lot of it was wrong. So the Egyptians believed, for example, that there were two complete circulatory systems where the, the arterial side had air in it uh, and the venous side carried blood. Um, and, and so th- there, there was a tremendous amount of wrong material. And, and that got passed to the Greeks and then that got passed to the to to the Romans. Now, meanwhile, artists are looking at this, going, "Oh, the heart is the center of of everything," and and that's where you're getting all of this blue bloods and all of this sort of emotional tie into the heart and the soul and all that. But meanwhile, I, you know, I I I cover this in all three of my books. It is so strange that because of one Roman surgeon by the name of Galen, he really put the the, the breaks on medical research and, and, and medical advances for 1500 years. And so I was like, how did that happen? And here's the story quite briefly after the fall of the Roman empire, Galen had about 3 million words that he'd written and, and, it, and his work was not initially translated into Latin, which was at the time in the West, it was, you know, that was the, 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 um, Primary. Yeah, the Primary. Yeah. and so it sat. And in the early middle ages, Galen's work was translated into Arabic by Syrian Christians, and they put their Christian slant on Galen's very, very faulty um, uh, uh, writings. And that got picked up, you know, so finally this Arab, this work in Arabic got translated into Latin. And the, the church leaders saw this and went, 
this is nice. And so his words, Galen's translated work, um, was, was determined to be divinely inspired. And so no one was allowed to do anything. So for 1,500 years, we were, we were, we were bleeding people to balance the humors. And, and right. George Washington got bled 40% of his blood the night before he died because they were trying to – these were the physicians of the time. They thought that that's how you treated um, infections. And now, you know, they knew nothing about uh, about what caused these diseases. Uh, they just know that if they drain 40% of your blood out, then, then it sort of mellowed you out and you, know, you weren't thrashing around. Right. I mean, that's really incredible. And there was like weird transfusions. So these ideas that they had, oh, we'll just pump milk right in. There's yeah. like, I mean, that was the serious thing at the time. Can you talk about some of the uh, poor medical choices made because of uh, bad knowledge. Yeah, there's a, so there's a, as you said, there's a whole chapter on that. And, uh, you know, for example, it, it was, they tried to transfuse blood, but without having that information about blood typing didn't come around till the 1900s with, with, with Carl Landsteiner. It, we're talking about 16, 17, 1800s here. If, if, if you're trying to transfuse blood into somebody, not only are you going to have a clotting problem, but if it's the wrong type of blood, if it's a mismatch, uh, then, then, then you can kill that person. And so they thought, well, they backed off and they said, well, let's put other stuff in. And, and so they they looked at milk, which back then you could, uh, from what I'm from what I read and, and researched, you could see these little globules of fat. And they thought that these were precursors to red blood cells and white blood cells. And so they thought, well, let's transfuse milk into people. Um, uh, so they used to, I mean, they used to just cart the goat over and take blood out of a goat and put it into a and put it into a person. They 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 put beer in. They put right. you know, they put wine. wine. Uh, yeah. So so there was a lot, and and I don't want to blame Galen because he didn't know that his work was going to carry on unimproved for fifteen hundred years. You know, but a lot of it has to do with this. You know, the the failure of this sort of lockstep thinking that 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 that, that we sometimes fall into. And this to me was. You know, this was, you know, this to me was like the opposite of the baby face story where this tragedy turned into something that was uh, incredibly good for, uh, for, for, for medicine. Uh, here you had this thing that just never ended. 1,500 right. years of, you know, instead of giving you an aspirin until you need to come back in the morning, it, you know, they would bleed you. Right. And I mean, but that goes all the way back to prehistory. So it was, I mean, they really didn't know much about the circulatory system or the heart until... The last 100, 150 years, which is pretty shocking, or maybe 200 years, I don't know. Yeah, well, in the in, in places like the Middle East and in China, they made their own advances without having to stumble over, uh, you know, over, over Galen's work. But um, when you're talking about the West, and and it wasn't until the 17th century that William Harvey actually showed that there that you know that 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 the right side of the blood and the left side of the blood don't really, you know, aren't going back and forth again across this across the this ventricular wall through it through invisible pores and mixing with this magic substance pneuma in in the air uh and so uh, in the west it took quite a long time to figure out how things actually worked and and to finally get away from this idea that um of cardiocentrism uh, that the heart was the was the key player in in terms of you know in things that we now ascribed to uh, to the brain and, and and the nervous system right and that was something i mean that's still a tradition kind of in in our society as looking to the heart as the primacy or the prime 
you know, organ of the whole human, the whole human body is based upon that, right? Well, it's certainly, it, it's certainly important, but, but then again, the, the circulatory system is not going to work unless you're, unless you think about it in terms of the respiratory system. So I still always tell my students, don't think of, uh, don't think of these organ systems, whether it's the nervous system or circulatory system or respiratory. Don't think of them as separate chapters because th that's the way it's sort of set up. So you learn this material, you you take an exam, and then you f sort of forget it by the time you get out to your car. That's just not the way to think about the, the body and how it works because it's so intimately, um, you know, there, there, there's so much interaction between, say, the, the respiratory system and circulatory system. I mean, you can't know one without the other. Um, right. And it's taken a long time for us to to put these ideas together and to get away from this old school of thought that, uh, you know, you, you've got to balance these four humors. Otherwise, uh, you, right. you're in trouble. So what is in on the horizon? What do we know now? What's on the horizon for the uh, circulatory system in the heart? Yeah, I, I go into a number of, of, of what I thought were fascinating stories, uh, and, and, and a bunch of them use, uh, you know, are using animal models. But the one that really jumps out at me is that, that, that there's a, there is a researcher at, at Harvard by the name of Harold Ott, O-T-T. And, and he realizes that, that, that thousands of people are still dying every year, waiting on lists to get transplants, not just talking heart liver transplants, kidney transplants, that sort of thing. And that's because you've got to match up tissue, you've got to match up blood. These things have got to be frozen and, and transported across the country. And that makes it difficult and deadly for some folks who are desperately in need of transplants. So what he wants to do is this, and what he's working on is he's saying, okay, if you die, instead of do donating your heart to a, you know, to, a, to a medical school, donate your heart to a facility that will take it, and they'll do what I'm learning how to do now, which is you take a donor heart, a fresh donor heart, and you run it through, a, literally it is a rinsing process where they, where they send a detergent down through the heart that's hanging there. And what that detergent does is dissolves away all of the cells that your body would react to and reject if you were to take that heart and transplant it into a person. So, and what you're left with is ghostly white, and it, it is a perfect sort of connective tissue model of the heart, a lot of collagen, and you're not, and our body's not having this massive immune response to collagen. It's it, it's sort of more, uh, you know, more inert and not, you know, if, if you were to put in uh, other types of cells that he dissolves away, you're going to have you're going to have problems with uh, uh, with rejection. So now, what he wants to do now that he has this ghost or model or scaffold that looks just like a heart, all the chambers, the valves, everything's still there. He wants to take. The, the heart recipient, the person who's going to get this heart, take a sample of their uh, from their skin, cells called fibroblasts. So you're not talking about a biopsy where they've got to go in and do all of this stuff. They're talking about taking a skin sample, taking those fibroblasts, and this technology exists, turning them into stem cells. And stem cells are cells that that you can that the body can, depending on how they're stimulated, can are going to turn into any different type of cell that uh, along this, however they're stimulated. Whether, whether it's a Could muscle be anything, cell, right. Nervous cell. Right. So they have the ability now to turn these fibroblasts into stem cells, and they have the ability to turn these stem cells into cardiac muscle cells. So if you start out with, with the recipient's fibroblast, what you're going to start out is the what you're going to end with is the recipient's muscle cells. So, so, so Ott wants to take these cells, grow them in culture, and then embed them and seed this model of a heart, um, and then take that heart 
and transplant that into a recipient. So I was completely blown away. Yeah. I said, how long? He said, probably within 10 years, we'll be doing that. It's incredible. I mean, the advances are off the chart. It would just be an incredible life-saving type of thing. I mean, I think that all those stem cell research and everything change the entire physiology of us. You know, what is man, transhuman or something, but really fascinating, really a terrific, terrific book. Very well written, very well done, accessible. Where is the best place for people to obtain this book? You can really get it. You can get it anywhere that books are sold in any format. So gotcha. it's widespread sales right now. It came out about two weeks ago. So so it's still it's still new. And um, then if people want to reach out to you, the best place is Bill Shoot, your um, website. Is that correct? Yeah, BillShot.com. Um, or you can reach me at Twitter at BillShotBooks or, or Facebook page, uh, BillShotAuthor. I'm also yeah. on Goodreads, author's page, um, cool. Amazon author's page. Sure. Accessible if people want to reach out to you. And your last name is spelled S-C-H-U-T-T. So it's www. B-I-L-L-S-C-H-U-T-T dot com. That's it. His website. I'll put it in the show notes as well. But uh, thank you so much for your time. Again, the title of the book is Pump, A Natural History of the Heart by Bill William, It was a real pleasure to be on. Thank you very much right. for having me on your show. All right. My pleasure. It was great to talk with you. Stay there. I'm going to end the broadcast. All right. Cool.